Hello and welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Maisha Kai, Managing Editor of The Glow Up, and today we are talking with the always inspiring Alicia Garza. For the uninitiated, I don't know who you are, but Alicia is an activist who is perhaps best known for co-creating the Black Lives Matter movement alongside Patrice Cullors and Opal Tometi. She's also the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network, is a principal at the Black Futures Lab, and is also the Strategy and Partnerships Director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Somehow, amidst all of the strategy and organizing, Alicia found time to write a book called The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When Things Fall Apart, which came out in October of last year. Just this month, The Purpose of Power came out in paperback, which afforded us the distinct privilege of getting to chat with her about it. Alicia was amazing to talk to. As people who have read her book will know, her knowledge of the Reagan era and how the policies and events that took place in the 80s shaped where we culturally are today is deep. I loved hearing her talk about being what she calls a baby organizer. And we, of course, touched on the drama surrounding the impending show, The Activist, which was still slated to be a reality competition show at the time of our discussion, as well as so much more. So without further delay, I give you my conversation with Alicia. Alicia, welcome to It's Lit. It is lit. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be with you. Oh my gosh, it's so good to have you too. And honestly, you know, full disclosure, we wanted to have you on last October when we were still a baby podcast and The Purpose of Power came out last October and we really, really wanted you here. And, you know, scheduling being what it was and us being a baby podcast, we couldn't make it happen. So we were thrilled to have the opportunity to revisit this incredible book, which has been named a best book by Time, Marie Claire, others, for its paperback release, which happened on September 7th. So congrats on that. Thank um, you. I'm glad it is still making the rounds and staying in conversation because it's a very, very important book and we're going to dig into it. But before we do, we have a little ritual here at It's Lit. You know, this is a podcast about Black thinkers, Black writers, Black ideas, uh, in your case, Black futures. Mm -hmm, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So we like to ask all of our guests, was there a book or books that for you was a game changer that was just absolutely mind-blowing and revolutionary in the way that it reframed the way that you thought? Mm. Oh, that's such a lovely question. Um, yeah, I, I, there's a couple. Uh, there's a book that is called... Roads to Dominion, um, The Rise of the Right Wing in the United States or something like that. And it's by Sarah Diamond. And it's a book that someone turned me on to years and years ago. And they kind of challenged me. You know, I was a baby organizer. <laughs> and they challenged me to read this book as if I didn't read. But I was like, I'll read you under the table. So I read the book. <laughs> and it was actually really helpful for me in terms of understanding who we're fighting. And I think a lot of people think about the conservative movement in this country as like individuals as opposed to a f almost 40-year movement that has gained steam and traction and shape and contour. And it has multiple factions inside of it. And I talk about this in the book. In fact, I use this book to help write my own. Um, so that is a book that helped change me. Uh, I think, you know, I thought that most conservatives were just racist. 
And I learned, right, that actually there's a bunch of factions. There's the religious faction, there's the racist faction, there's the kind of neoliberal faction, right? And then they kind of morph and and interact and engage with each other. And that is what creates what we see today. And just to say, I hope Sarah decides to update that book, because I do think the right-wing movement in this country has shifted uh, pretty dramatically to the right with with Donald Trump and Trumpism. Uh, and it'd be great to get more kind of context around that uh, and the kind of neo-fascist wing. Um, other books that have kind of really shaped my thinking, Black Reconstruction uh, by W.E.B. Du Bois, which I started reading again this year and really moved by what happens after complete chaos and disarray how do people come together and build something new? And one of the things I learned, you know, around that period was about the kind of roots and origins of the United States Department of Justice, which I learned was actually created at first to fight the Klan, which emerged after the Civil War. So that's a book that has really kind of touched me. <laughs> um I'll leave it there for now. Those are two big ones that people can take. Well, they're with them. two that we haven't heard, which is kind of cool. You know, it's like we get some we get some pretty, you know, standard answers here and for good reason and yeah. for different reasons. But it's always cool to be turned on to new things. And I love that you were talking about books that people turned you on to. I also love that you talked about a book that you got into as a baby organizer, because that's so much of what your book is about. So the purpose of power, subtitle how we come together when we fall apart, which you also just alluded to. You know, this is a book, I, I'm sure, you know, most people, most of our listeners, most readers of The Root are familiar with you through, obviously, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, even though you have led another organization <laughs> for several yeah. years since then, yeah. which is Black Futures Lab. And I'm sure that when everybody heard you were, you were writing a book, that's what we expected it to be about. But this is really retracing Steps, And I think in many ways, um, it, it serves as, and I don't know if you intended it this way, serves as kind of a guidebook for other baby organizers, because I think <laughs> it can be rather intimidating when you look at these huge movements and, and intimidating from a standpoint of like, well, that can't be me. And I don't know how to engage on that level. And you really kind of take us back to the very beginning. You know, you, you just talked about how, you know, the right wing as we know it now, was 40 years in the making. And I, one of my earliest memories of political awareness is walking into my kindergarten. Hilariously, I still live a block from my kindergarten right now <laughs> in Chicago. But um walking into my kindergarten with my mother, who uh, at the time was a journalist, just like I am. And it was uh, Carter, you know, Carter and Reagan were facing off and, you know, it was time to vote. My mother would take me with her to polls. Yeah. And, I, and I asked her about the president and I said, so, so who do we vote for, mommy? And she says, Oh, we vote for Jimmy Carter, honey, because Ronald Reagan doesn't like black people. Mm. Okay. <laughs> <That's> like <my laughs> that was my earliest one, like, like the first time I was aware of politics. Like that was like the beginning and end of the sentence. Yeah. I remember going into, into my kindergarten class that morning and some little, uh, like the other little black boy in class, like said something about his father was voting for Reagan. And I said, well, your father's dumb because he doesn't like black people. Okay. Well done. Well done. See, your mama raised you right. <laughs> I say all that. To say, exactly right. I say all that to say you really really do this interesting um, deconstruction of, of the rise of Reagan, who he was, how he was, how he came to be this revered personality. Why was he such an important, do you think, 
touch point in terms of like the crux of what we witness now? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really glad that you asked that. And just to say, I feel super affirmed because I did mean to write a guidebook. And <laughs> it's it's not a script at all. I mean, I, I it's not like a rules for radicals. You know, it's not that kind of thing. But it's the book that I really wanted when I was starting out as an organizer. And, you know, back then, there weren't a lot of books that helped make sense of the things that I was experiencing every day. And I always was like looking for mentors or looking for people who were doing the same thing as me. And this was before Obama came out as a community organizer, right? Like nobody knew, like organizers knew what community organizing was, but nobody else did, right? So people would be like, wait, so you like work for a charity? And I was like, no, that's not what I do, right? So this is intended to be a guidebook. And I started it off you know, not with the story of BLM. And I I also thought when I first got this book deal that I was going to write about BLM. And I, um, that's not what came out when I sat down to write. Actually, I started thinking a lot about how I got to this place and all of the stories that were coming to me were stories about my mother and the way in which she shaped my world. Ronald Reagan became president the year that I was born. Um, He is the precursor to Donald Trump. You know, California is an interesting state. We just uh, defeated a recall of our governor just yesterday. And we have a legacy, right, of electing popular figures to run the state. Um, Ronald Reagan, right? Um, And also we had Arnold Schwarzenegger. So when yeah, I was... Absolutely. I mean, I look, I, my other hometown is Minneapolis, Minnesota. Jesse's so insured. You know. Like, yeah. yes, I know. I know. I <laughs> know how I this goes down. When I was in college, right, Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> um, prevailed in a recall election um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, against right. Gray we Davis. We should note we're having this conversation on the morning that Gavin Newsom it becomes the <laughs> second governor in history to retain his seat during a recall. That's that right. And <laughs> I remember saying to myself, like, I don't want Arnold Schwarzenegger to sign my damn college diploma. Like, I I think I need to figure out like what I'm going to do. Real. Um, Real. <laughs> but, but I say all that to say I, I wanted that context in the book because two reasons. One, I think sometimes people look at folks like me and they think we like fell out of the sky, right? <laughs> like you come to where you are exactly as you are right now. And that's just not true. Like every single person who has taken a step to change the things that we can no longer abide by, they come from somewhere, right? And something shaped them and inspired them and activated them. But the other thing that I really wanted to do by putting this moment and myself and people like me in context is to help people understand what it is that we're dealing with right now. This isn't about good people or bad people, right people or wrong people, right mean people or nice people. It's really actually about another movement that has been shaping our lives for the last 40 years. And when I was born, right, was when they started to gain steam. And the stories about Ronald Reagan and 
you know, ketchup being a vegetable that belonged in school lunches and like, um, good times, you know, and the, you know, him breaking the, 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 the airport workers strikes and, you know, a lot of the things he talked about and a lot of the things he did, they were camouflaged by the fact that he was a well-known and popular celebrity, but he was also a very brilliant conservative strategist who had power right? And shaped my life and the lives of people in my generation. And I want people who are reading this book to actually place themselves in history too. You may not have been born in the 1980s, but you were born in a context where a movement, right, was gaining steam and shaping your life. And it could have been the civil rights movement. It could have been the Black Power movement. For me and my generation, it was actually the conservative movement. And at that time, the faction that was most powerful inside of that movement was the religious right. And so the, you know, moral majority and focus on the family, all of that came with policies and practices around morality and around capitalism, right, that really shaped three decades of public policy, and it also shaped three decades of culture. That's why I wanted that piece in the book. there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. I love that you see you segued me perfectly because I love that you brought up culture and I love that you brought up morality because, you know, I'm a few years ahead of you. So I'm a young Xer. You are you fall into that pocket of zennials, right? Thank you for you know. saying that. Thank you for saying that. There's somebody out there. I'm not going to name names, but we had a whole ass debate about this. And they're born like two years before me. They're like, you're a millennial. Uh-huh. I'm like, I no. am not. I am not. It's a fact. But, you know, I consider us, we are, you know, incredibly blessed to have been part of the MTV generation because I remember when it came on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But but in that, you know, I don't know that I thought of, you know, I talk about that moment of political awareness, but I don't know that I, I realized how much we were impacted by things like, you know, the Cold War or Reaganomics or any of this rhetoric um, that you are among a group of people who are now so artfully articulating that really does put our own lives into context. You know, when you talk about placing yourself in history, I'm like, well, shit, I was there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I don't right. know that I totally did that until, like, until recently, you know, where I started to really think like, oh my God, that is why I thought like that. Or, oh my goodness, that is how that happened. And even growing up primarily in Chicago, you know, obviously, and you point this out in the book, this idea of like the welfare queen and this one example of this woman in Chicago, which we're still living with today, this pervasive thing about Literally. what about Chicago, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't Dun, dun. Right. You know, um, how we weaponize communities in American rhetoric. You know, so I was really actually, I loved that you wove in so much about pop culture because that's where I live. That's, that's where my, where I sit on a daily basis is at this nexus of, you know, pop culture and politics. And I think what you illustrate here is that most of us do. 
you know, and in doing so, you make that really, really accessible. That said, are you at all uncomfortable? <laughs> this might be a loaded question, That's so okay. feel free Come to on. shut bring, me down. Bring it. <laughs> are you at all uncomfortable with the way that BLM has made its way into pop culture? Um, you know, we've seen this thing or activism in general. So let's like, we can even take this macro. I mean, you know, we're also, we're having this conversation on during a week in mm. which I just reported on this, right? Uh, during which there is a game show. <laughs> I just thought I was waiting for this. There's a game show being proposed about, act- not even proposed. It's been greenlit. Like this, it's happening. this is happening. It's happening. It's happening. There's celebrities attached. I see you, Ursher. Honey, they um, taped it and everything. They're right. Like, this you know, thing. Global Citizen has an entire game it's show, a, competition co- show coming out. I was like, so, you know, I think I said something like, you know, is this like like the amazing race, but like with activists? Like, is this like gladiator? <laughs> like, it what is. is this? It is. Um, how do you feel about this like commodification of activists? Like, it's just like this. It's so perverse to me. But you know, not to put words in your mouth, how is the, How does this translate to you? I'm glad you asked this. It's not loaded for me at all. Okay. <laughs> you know, Milkar Cabral said that culture is a weapon, and he's absolutely right. For those who don't know Amilcar Cabral, he was a, a revolutionary leader in uh, Guinea-Bissau. And, you know, we are in the middle of a culture war, and it is not unlike the culture wars that you and I grew up in. Back then, not to date us, but I'm just saying, back then, you know, the culture wars were about morality. They were about the structure of family and who had families and who didn't. It was about sexual morality. And that's why Madonna, right, which I talk about in my book, and some people kills me. People are like, who's Madonna? I'm like, don't you ever, don't you ever in your whole life disrespect the game that As way? if she would let you forget. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like don't you ever, like, don't, don't do I'm it. I'm not going to front. I was an eight-year-old in lace gloves who Honey, wanted to sit somewhere on the spectrum between Madonna and Vanity Six. So, you know. I want and ap- the gloves and, you know, to come back and I might just bring them back just we on should the string. I think we should do it. If we can I have bell bottoms come back for the fourth time in my damn life. Listen, we listen, can have lace gloves. Listen, I have to see if I have to see low rises and your thong showing and crop tops. I think I can get a lace glove Facts. in there and maybe a me- like a mesh headband. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, yeah. we could leave the Aquanet alone, but everything mm-hmm. else, I'm, I'm take with. But me. I could sneak a bustier underneath <laughs> the blazer yeah, yes, or something. I could do yes. it. I'm with it. I'm with it with the cones. Yes, with the cones. That's right. So you know, and 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 also back then, it was about the welfare queen. It was about you know, the the demonization of the Soviet Union, right? It was about all of these kind of juggernauts, right, that were lightning rods for a movement that had been nascent, but it was gaining steam. Today, those lightning rods are Black Lives Matter. It's Chicago. It's mask mandates. It's China instead of the, the Soviet Union. It is... Um, yeah, we can't seem to get them to worry about the Soviet Union. No, <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, this is a problem. This is a whole ass problem. Know, like, <laughs> so, you know, in some ways, um, I see the weaponization of BLM as a cultural lightning rod, as a symbol of how successful it has been. And just like this week, you know, people were all in their feels about you know, AOC at the Met Gala with her I'm text, so glad the you rich brought it dress. Up, fashion is my beat. You know, you know I'm, I'm like, 
I was like, but she got you to talk, right? That's you exactly talk, it. We're all talking about I'm it. I'm like, we're all talking about it. And so she's actually on brand and doing mm-hmm. exactly what she needs Completed to be doing the assignment. right now. Yes. She gets an A. Yes. OC. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. And then at the same time, when I see stuff like that TV show, I just, I, I also acknowledge that we live in a capitalist society where everything can be bought and sold. And that includes activism. And, you know, I talk about this in the book too, where we have a whole chapter on platforms and profiles and pedestals and the way in which activism and organizing, right? And I have a distinction between them have become brands and things that are cool, like coffee shops or breweries, right? Instead of things with substance. And so we have to be careful around things like that. I am really disappointed about that show. Um, and I, I, I do feel on one side that somebody's going to be like, well, I coat, you know, I stamped it or whatever, but it doesn't matter. It's like, actually, it, it shows how not steeped in change, the creators of that are, to pit people against each other when actually the whole thing of organizing and activism is to bring people together to collaborate for change. So to have some competition. <laughs> right, we gonna outdo each other on, on our goodness, on our, on our, you know. Yeah, and then to be without context. So we should talk about the G20 and why the G20 is a problem and why it actually gets in the way of a lot of the things that people are trying to do to create change around poverty, around climate, around you know health and well-being. The G20 is not a facilitator of any of those things. And in fact, if the creators of this show were really steeped in their craft, like they say they are, then they would know that people are getting killed in some countries for doing the work that they're trying to put on a TV show. So if you're going to bring people to the G20, use your influence, right, to challenge the governments that are literally disappearing people for doing the thing that you're about to make money off of. And then put Usher and Priyanka and um, what's her name? Who Julianne, did the blackface? Yes, yeah. Yes, um, yes. Oh God, I y'all, 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 y'all not finna tell me nothing about. Um, anyways, I'm not going. I'm not going to do all that. But I'm also going to say, we should just stick to Celebrity Jeopardy. Um, and Lavar Burton Fair. should be running it. You know what I'm saying? Fair. And people, yeah. if they want to move money and they want to impact change, they can do that. And there's a lot of ways to do that. But this isn't one of them. I mean, I believe they can do it through Black Futures Lab. Hello. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Like that's, that's a whole thing that you can do. Yeah, it is. <laughs> like, we are actually working to make Black communities powerful in politics. And it's interesting because, you know, you talk um, here, you know, you really do, you take us back through this most recent election. I mean, you, you take us through uh, 2016 as well, but this most recent election, which we know coming when it did in the middle of a whole, <laughs> a whole lot of everything, you know? That's right. <laughs> um, and, and particularly talking about Hillary Clinton. And you, you note that Hillary Clinton had that discussion about how she didn't believe in changing hearts. She believed in, in changing policies. Now, I would never align you with, with Hillary. I think like most faves, she's, Problematic. Mm. Mm. <laughs> well done. You know, and as you said, like, there's no, you know, this is not about good or bad people. And I, I certainly would never call Hillary Clinton a bad mm-hmm. person. I just mm-hmm. think like, you know, we do what we do. That's right. Um, but, you know, in some ways that is what you are working on now. Like this changing of policies, like this understanding that, especially when you are dealing with these issues of like trying to fight somebody else's idea of 
morality and religion and very entrenched beliefs is incredibly difficult. And that needle shifts so much more slowly than actual policymaking can. So, A, you know, yay, thank you for that. But also, <laughs> you know, do you see those correlations when you talk about Hillary? When you were, when you were writing about her, did you feel like... Yes, it's just not for you to do that. It's for us to do. That. Like, how did you? How did how did that line up for you? Well, you know, um, it was hard to write about 2016, and I still feel like I'm processing five years later. Right? I'm like, okay, now do I still see that differently? I mean, it was, it's been five years of trauma. I mean, yeah, it's been a lot. Not? It's been a lot. I was always clear about what needed to be done. I didn't want to do it, but I was clear about what needed to be done. And I think that's true for a lot of people. We just weren't able to execute it. And that is one of the pitfalls um, of not engaging elections and electoral organizing in such a way where you're looking at it from a power building perspective as opposed to personalities. Now, with that being said, you know, former Secretary Clinton had bars for BLM, not just during the election, but in her like what happened book. And I wish that she had been more nuanced. And I said that actually quite publicly. I said, you know, look, at the end of the day, this hearts and minds versus policy thing, actually they are intertwined. They're deeply intertwined. If we haven't won hearts and minds, we don't move the votes to get the policy. That's just it. And then on the other hand, you know, in her book, she had bars about who was down to work with her and who wasn't down to work with her. And I found that to be inaccurate. And the way I know it was inaccurate is that, you know, we gathered a group of organizers from BLM to have off-the-record conversations with her policy team about policies that we wanted to see in her platform. And there's receipts for that. So the notion that there were some people that were down to work with her and some people who weren't is not a nuanced conversation around why. And when it comes to politics, and this is a part of the reason that I started the Black Futures Lab, Black people have been being gaslit for a very long time around elections, around voting. And the fact of the matter is most of us feel that we participate and we do participate at higher rates than almost anybody else, if not than anybody Absolutely. else. Absolutely. And we continue to get nothing out of it. And that is something that we have to have honest conversations about. I still do the work, but I, I have stopped telling people you have to vote for change or change won't happen. That's just not actually true. Um, you have to organize for change and voting is one way that we do that, but it has to be accompanied by a bunch of other strategies. And frankly, if Democrats, right, want to be successful, not just in this upcoming election cycle, but in this political terrain, we have to stop gaslighting Black people about what we do and what we don't do and acknowledge that as long as people don't feel like they get anything out of politics, less and less people are going to participate. And that has a disastrous effect on democracy. And you cannot kick to the side each election cycle the people who keep you in office. Fair. And they obviously know that we do. Um, just one more note on Hillary as a segue. You know, she became also a lightning rod for this kind of third wave feminist conversation mm -hmm. that we saw rise in the wake of her defeat. And one of the things I loved about The Purpose of Power is that as much as it's about 
the genesis of your activism and the genesis of BLM, it also is very, very, very much a conversation about feminism in all its form, both declared and undeclared. You know, for instance, you do reference your mother. And I, you know, I want to take a moment also to shout out your mother because mm, <laughs> she was obviously a tremendous influence. And I know you lost her while you were writing this book. I'm That's really, right. I was really sorry to read that. So my condolences there. Thank um, you. But I know she didn't consider herself a feminist, although everything she did. That's right. <laughs> Every, That's it's right. like, it seemed that so much of her being and so much of the person she raised you to be That's was steeped right. in a very, uh, organic feminism, That's you know, right. and as we know, feminism can also be incredibly performative. <laughs> and messy, honey. <laughs> and messy. It's very, look, all yeah. of it's messy. All yeah. movements are messy. And I think that is one of the overriding takeaways of this book that it is messy. It's That's messy right. work. But you really, again and again and again, return to this thing that I think a lot of us know to be true on a very, you know, innate level, on a, a factual level, how women get lost in the movements that they create again yeah. and again and again. You That's know, whether right. you're talking about Martin or Nation of Islam or, you know, like mm -hmm. any, like all these movements that women are tremendously active in, important in, you know, that we are always galvanizing for our communities. Like, yeah. you know, we're all, we, you know, we, right. we are often the glue in our communities. So in, in writing about this, and I know that some of this had to be um, emotional <laughs> for you mm -hmm. in doing so, because I know there's been a lot of appropriation of the work that you have done, the work that you and Patrice and Opal have done. What did you hope that we would take away? And I guess as we continue to hopefully build movements and watch movements evolve, what, what did you hope we would bring to that from, from making sure that this particular point was driven home about the, the presence of women here and, and what we do? Well, there's a few things. So I wanted to dive into a lot of the buzzwords that are floating around these days, intersectionality, feminism, right? All these things that I, words people use and I think maybe don't know what they mean. And then there are also things that have become lightning rods, right? Intersectionality is one of those lightning rods from this culture war. Um, and feminism was a lightning rod from the culture wars that we came out of, right? And so I wanted to both root ourselves in like, what does this actually mean so that you can really make a decision about whether you're in it or out? And I use the example of my mother because Sure, it's been wrought with um, privilege, right? And dynamics where people have been imperfect in the way that they have implemented their vision for a better world. And at the same time, it's still a real thing. And I think the story of my mom never having used the word feminist, but being deeply feminist is kind of how I imagine most people are. Like there's a lot of people out there who believe that women are people um, and believe that there should be equality, right? And equity um, and that your life circumstances shouldn't be determined by the categorization that you're placed in around sex or gender. That's not a, that's not a wild idea. <laughs> um, but for some reason, when we call it feminism, right, people go, oh my God. And for this last decade, I think even Beyonce, like bringing it back into the mainstream, people had all this stuff about it, right? And was she feminist enough or was she not? And I was like, this doesn't even matter. This is kind of like the tax the rich thing. We're now all talking about feminism. <laughs> So. Well, right. And I mean, and it does speak to this, this whole, this thing that you also kind of touch on, like, the, you know, these purity tests that, mm -hmm. that 
leaders have to have. And I think, I do think it's really interesting that the other thing you bring up and you just brought it up again is that you really didn't have a desire to be like out front. You just wanted to do the work, right? Mm-hmm. And so here you are and you are out front. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, um, but. <laughs> <laughs> As my You're mother like, would say, I'm sorry. Girl. <laughs> That's how she says it. Deal with but, it. Uh, yeah. 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 But, um, but these purity tests, um, and, and also the fact that then you end up, as you're doing the work, also having to vigorously defend. Yep the work that you're doing and your own, you know, and this is something Tarana Burke and I have talked about many mm-hmm. times. Yes. Um, she wrote know, about it. Both personally and professionally. She, she's written exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Her book came out <laughs> yesterday mm-hmm. and, and she wrote about that too. This, this sense of something that you've built being then appropriated and then you having to kind of either reclaim it or defend it or move elsewhere yeah. or well, she wrote a piece about it for The Root. And yes, she, she wrote did. a piece yes. about BLM. And that and was prior to Me Too even becoming kind of right. its own zeitgeist moment. Yes. That's right. And, um, you know, what I appreciate about truth tellers like Tarana is that it creates a historical record. And one of the things that I think is an experience of Black people, of women, of Black women is that we're gaslit around our experiences. We're told that the things that happened to us didn't happen. We're told that we shouldn't feel a way about those things. And just getting to your question about, you know, how do you grapple with not just the visibility, right? But then people trying to like rob you of your legacy. Um, You know, the way that we grapple with it is by creating a historical record. Of course, I know what my contributions have been, and I don't try to overstate those, but I certainly shouldn't be expected to understate them either. And I appreciate Tarana so much for really also naming that. And she and I didn't even know each other at that time, right? But I remember reading her piece and being like, thank God, like this, it's it's crazy making to feel like you have to step aside because there's a dude in a blue vest that says he did what you've done, which is just not true. And it's not about pushing anybody out. It's about telling the truth about what you've done and what you haven't done, what you've contributed and what you haven't contributed. You know, Cabral, again, always says, tell the people no lies and claim no easy victories. And the fact of the matter is, if we continue to tell fairy tales about movements that place cishet men at the center of them, we lose the richness and the context for how those movements came to be, why they became necessary, and what their engines were, and why that actually mattered. It's not just about representation. It's about the ways in which people have been left out and left behind, and the ways that they've resisted that. That doesn't mean that cishet men haven't been erased as well, um, particularly men of color, Black men. But it does mean, right, that we can't tip the scales and only talk about them at the expense of other people who have been left out and left behind. And I wanted to bring that across in this book. This isn't a chapter I talk a lot about because my book is not around it's not about Duray McKesson. It's actually about this larger dynamic. Duray McKesson is not the first person to interlope on a thing. Um, actually, throughout history, there have been a lot of interlopers. and Throughout history. We see it every Martin Luther King day. So. Yeah. And so <laughs> it's really about us um, 
learning the lessons so that we can make new mistakes is what I say. Well, and also not replicating a structure that Correct. we're trying to dismantle. I Correct. mean, you know, if you're if you're replicating the same patriarchal structure within a movement that is meant to dismantle yep. all of that, <laughs> then we know, can't keep. What are we doing? It. You know, what are we doing? Yeah. What are we doing? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's I, I usually ask you know as my final question for these interviews, I I like to ask our writers. How do you hope people use this book? But, you know, as you as we've already stated, you uh, this was a guidebook. It is both a love letter to black people. It is it is a love letter to movement building. It is a love letter to uh, all of it, really. And, and you know, I, I do hope people use it. I think there's a lot to glean here. And I, I personally was inspired because I'm one of those people who's like, I'm a keyboard activist. Like I write. <laughs> that's what I do. You know, but, you know, you really do give us all space to show up in the way that we show up. And I think that that's really powerful in terms of, of getting people motivated. But instead, I'm going to ask you, because I think it's important that we take care of ourselves emotionally. Was this cathartic for you? Did this book for you, did the writing of it do something for you emotionally that was, I don't know, releasing, fulfilling, or did it put a pin in something for you? It did. And this is such a beautiful question. Nobody's ever asked it before. So thank you for that. Um, Taking care of my people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it is cathartic and it was cathartic for me. You know, I went from being an organizer that nobody knew of outside of my local context to somebody who is now known internationally. And that was a huge leap. And it's come with a lot of um, beautiful things. And it's also come with a lot of hard things. And one of the things that's been really challenging is that it's kind of placed us in this box. We're like the BLM ladies. And I hate it. <laughs> I'm like, we're so much more than that and have been prior to BLM and will continue to be. And um, for me, this really was about tying a bow and saying, okay, like here is not just my understanding of what it is we were trying to accomplish when we created this thing, but here it is in context. And let's not put a period at the end of that story. Let's actually give it room to breathe and evolve and grow. I hope that this book creates space for a canon where more organizers who are doing incredible work will actually be inspired to document the work that they're doing. We need a historical record because if we don't write it, somebody else will. And then I also really hope that what this book does for people is encourages them to keep going, um, normalizes in some ways the things that people are like, I'm just not sure if this is what, you know, <laughs> I should be expecting or experiencing. And then also catalyzes our imaginations about what is possible. Everybody has a role to play, right? Journalists and athletes and mothers, right? Like everybody has a role to play. The question is, what is the right role for you? Um, and I hope that what this book is able to do is bring you on a journey to better understand how you get here what's catalyzing you to want to do something, and then to actually give yourself some room to figure out what is your best contribution in this wide quilt of what it means to make change. So hopefully you find your square. Well, Alicia Garza, thank you so much for appearing on The Root Presents It's Lit. Um, I, I love this book. 
adore you Thank and everything you. you had to say. So I feel like I've, I've, you know, I'm like, oh. <laughs> deeply touching. I so appreciate you. This was lovely. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. Our theme song was penned by yours truly and producer Scott Jacoby. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us out, and we appreciate your feedback so much. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can always find me on Twitter at Maisha, that's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A, and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. What I'm currently reading right now is Race Against Time by Keith Boykin, who is another activist, political pundit and commentator and bestselling author. I should also mention that he's my cousin, but (laughs) that's irrelevant to the conversation. The book is brilliant and we're going to be talking to Keith about it soon. Um, This is his fifth book. And I I have to say, aside from, you know, familial pride, I, I, I am... Always, always astounded just by his breadth of knowledge. And here he, he does something similar to Alicia in that he really helps us retrace our steps through a series of presidents, um, at least one of whom he's worked for and another who he attended law school with. Um, and, and really help us understand, um, you know, further understand how, how a lot of these, what we consider to be cultural moments, you know, these little touch points have now become major, major battleground for us um, in contemporary politics. So we'll be talking to him soon. But in the meantime, that's it for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. And we will see you next week. In the meantime, you know what to do. Keep it lit. 